Welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that is dedicated to 100% hematology, clinical hematology, discussing all aspects of hematology, whether these are clinical trials, debates, papers, or conference coverages. As you listen to this podcast, you probably are a few weeks out from the American Society of Hematology meeting that took place in the beautiful city of New Orleans, Louisiana in December 2022. During that meeting that was attended by thousands of hematologists and others, much of the presentations focused on advances in all aspects of hematology, including lymphoid malignancies. What was really new in lymphoma? And I think this is really important because, because the plenary session actually did have uh, one of the most important presentations. Abstract number one was actually in mantle cell lymphoma, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I have invited Dr. Lori Sen from British Columbia to talk to me about advances in non-Hodgkin lymphoma as they were presented. I hope that you are going to enjoy this episode of the Hemang Pulse. The Hemang Pulse is always dedicated to all things hematology, so you could keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology. Professor Lori Sen comes to us from Canada to tell us all things non-Hodgkin lymphoma from the ASH meeting in December 2022. Thank you to Blood Cancers today for allowing me to host this podcast. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, like, and let me know how I am doing on this podcast and send any feedback you may have either by tweeting at me directly at Shadi Nabhan or by sending this through email or through the website of Blood Cancers today. Without further ado, Dr. Professor Lori Sen on the Hemang Pulse. First of all, let's just introduce you to listeners and viewers, maybe a little bit about you and what you do, where you work, and what got you into oncology and lymphoma? Sure. Well, thank you for the invitation. This is my first time, so I'll try and behave. But <laughs> um, I am a medical oncologist and hematologist. I actually am part of BC Cancer in Vancouver, Canada. So I work in the Canadian environment. Uh, but in my real job, I see lymphoma patients, and I also do clinical and translational research in lymphoma. Although I, I treat all lymphomas, so non-Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, I even treat CLL and multiple myeloma. Probably my research focus is mainly in B-cell lymphomas. So um, the more typical ones that we see, DLBCL and follicular lymphoma. And what got me into it? Oh, the thinking way back, you know, it, it was a burgeoning field when I was a trainee. And, and that is in sort of 
when I, when I think about what's going on now, it was just the very beginning of, of starting to see progress in hematologic malignancies. And, and that is really what pulled me into the lymphoma field. And it obviously was the right decision because things have just exploded in terms of you know, treatment opportunities and outcomes are just getting better and better. Well, you and your group have done really amazing work. I mean, I, I can I can cite a lot of the papers that you have published that have really transformed how we take care of patients. So I'm a big fan of your work and kudos to all of the accomplishments that you have done. And I think, you know, we always can count on maybe two hands right now, the folks who have transformed how we take care of patients with lymphoma and you are amongst those. So it's really, for me as an admirer, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So we both were at ASH, the American Society of Hematology meeting, but I've asked you to come on the Hemonc Pulse to talk a little bit about your observation in, in lymphoid malignancies. It's really an open-ended question, and we thought we can go over four, five, six abstracts that you really think listeners ought to know about, uh, and they may be more clinically relevant than the thousands of other preclinical things. So Shoot, let's start with number one that, in your opinion, we need to talk about. Well, you know, I have to confess that I actually thought this ASH was going to be a relatively quiet meeting. I, I didn't see any groundbreaking information come out. But then we saw that the number one abstract of the entire meeting was actually a lymphoma abstract. And in that, I'm referring to the Triangle Study, which was uh, a really pivotal or important trial done in mantle cell lymphoma. So many people recognize that mantle cell lymphoma is relatively rare, but not that rare. It makes up about probably seven to 10% of aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphomas that we treat. So it is a form of aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And although we have lots of treatments, it remains incurable. So it's still a very challenging entity. Right now, for younger patients, mainly those under the age of 65, the standard treatment still relies on an upfront induction with chemoimmunotherapy, followed by an autologous stem cell transplant, so the big hammer of high-dose chemotherapy, and then usually two years of rituximab maintenance. And what we saw presented in the plenary session as the number one abstract of the meeting was a study done by basically the European mantle cell group that probably has been the most prolific in the area. And they did a three-arm randomized trial of untreated younger patients who we would normally take down that route of chemoimmunotherapy and transplant and use that as the standard arm. And then there were two experimental arms where patients got the brutinib added in. So um, one in which they got added into the induction and then post-transplant, and one arm in which it got added into the induction, and then the patient skipped the transplant. So what we learned from this three-arm study is that the two out of the three arms that did the best were the arms that had the abrutinib. So either combined with induction and post-transplant or prior to transplant. And the, I think the most fascinating thing was is that the arm that got a brutinib with the induction and then continued it as maintenance without a transplant was able to do just as well as the other brutinib arm. So essentially what this told us is that adding a brutinib 
to the upfront treatment of these patients improved failure-free survival overall. And failure-free survival was improved in the arm where transplant was omitted when the abrutinib was added. So essentially, we learned that we can move abrutinib in the upfront setting for these patients, and it actually will likely make the transplant unnecessary. So this was selected as the number one abstract because it's anticipated that this is likely to be a practice-changing study where you know it demonstrated that if we move abrutinib into the frontline setting with the chemoimmunotherapy, both with the induction and then as a maintenance platform, then we can likely get rid of the transplant. So, you know, I, I think there's some unknowns with this study still. Um, it's routine for patients to get rituximab maintenance for two years after the transplant or after chemoimmunotherapy. And in this trial, it was left to physician discretion and only about half of patients received the maintenance rituximab. So that aspect needs to be dissected out. And I think we really do need to see the publication but it's anticipated that this will likely make the transplant obsolete in the upfront setting for mantle cell lymphoma. Lori, was the, and I don't remember, was overall survival also different? Was just, uh, I'm trying to think, the reason I bring this up is because what we're saying is if you can give ibrutinib, you probably can avoid transplant. But for situations where you cannot give it because of poor access, you still do transplant. But you know, what, what's your sense about giving ibrutinib for a longer duration? Is it, Was it two years? They gave it for two years after? Correct. Yes, it was given. Actually, let me just double check on the timing of that. Um, you know, it, it's funny. The terms, it, it's a little, some of the details were a little bit vague, to be honest. And one of the questions that came up was, you know, since BTK inhibitors or brutinib are commonly used, as a second line treatment, you know, are we really just merging first line and second line together? Are we really getting further ahead? And to answer your question, right now, the overall survival was trending to look better in the abrutinib arms. And, um, and certainly the transplant arm is the lower of the three arms in overall survival, but at a time it is not statistically significantly different. So I think this will open some questions. I think we need to digest it once we see the full details of this abstract, because I, you know, there are some ways that this could play out. Um, it also begs the question, you know, can you take this information and extrapolate it to other BTK inhibitors? I mean, I think most likely, you know, most of us have moved on to second generation BTK inhibitors rather than a brutinib. But uh, I suspect that if, if this becomes standard of care, it will probably be extrapolated to other BTK inhibitors. That's great. And uh, that was uh, presented uh, by the European colleagues. It would be, would be interesting to see the adoption in the U.S., in Canada, and, and elsewhere. Uh, what else did you see at ASH? Well, you know, a few years ago, as you might recall, and even last year, all of the focus was around CAR T-cell therapy. And this year, I'd say the big focus probably in, in most of the oral sessions was around bispecific therapy. So that started a little bit previously. We've been getting excited about bispecifics, but I, I think it really ramped up this year because it's anticipated that you know we'll see the approvals in North America of bispecifics very shortly, and they're likely to come out 
in clinical care. So what we saw, for example, was more data on the use of bispecific monotherapy for follicular lymphoma. So uh, last year in a high profile session, we saw the data of mosinotuzumab as monotherapy for follicular lymphoma after at least two lines of therapy. And to remind everybody when we talk about bispecifics, this is really a, a new class of agent. There are many under development, but the ones that are furthest along and most likely to come out into clinical practice shortly are those that target CD20 and CD3 simultaneously. So these agents essentially serve to have a, a double antibody. One antibody sticks onto CD20 on the lymphoma cells, and the other antibody sticks onto CD3 of T cells with the goal of bringing together T cells with the lymphoma cells and inducing immune reaction. So it's a type of immunotherapy. Mosinotuzumab presented last year in a high-profile session was represented this year with longer follow-up. And what we learned was that in a group of patients with follicular lymphoma who have had at least two lines of prior therapy, the response rates are super high at about 80% and the CR rates about 60%. We learned that last year. What we learned this year, though, is with longer follow-up, we're seeing that you know this can be very durable in some patients. So the median progression-free survival was approximately two years. And there's some patients that go well beyond that with you know, very prolonged durable remissions. So it, it's what's really most exciting to me about the bispecific antibodies, particularly for follicular lymphoma, is that they are very well tolerated. Um, you know, most of the for example, is given as finite therapy. It gets given as eight cycles. And if patients achieve a CR, they stop at that point. Otherwise, they can continue up to 17 cycles, which is about a year of therapy. But most patients on the trial that was presented um, stopped after eight cycles. So, um, you know, it's an every 21 day treatment. So that's roughly, you know, six months of therapy. But essentially, Aside from the first cycle of therapy, where we have to recognize that cytokine release syndrome can be a side effect of initiating the treatment, it is extremely well tolerated with you know patients feeling very well. So I've had the opportunity to test this in clinical trials, and, and my patients really feel like it's the easiest treatment they ever received. So I, I think the risk-benefit ratio here is really going to be uh, advantageous to the patient where it's, you know, the tolerability of these agents is, is excellent. So we saw that update on mosinotuzumab. We also saw some data on odronextamab, which is, I would say, a competitor, similar, you know, CD3, CD20 bispecific that also presented their pivotal data in, sorry, in, in follicular lymphoma after two lines of therapy. And it was looking very similar as well. Um, that particular drug, so the odronexumab, it was given in a slightly different fashion. It gets given to progression, so rather than a finite therapy. So there are differences in how these competing bispecifics are being developed in terms of scheduling and duration of therapy. So as you know, the data comes out in fuller format, I think, and, and if they all come out and into the clinic, people will have to weigh in sort of the convenience, perhaps, and, and other factors we learn as the data comes out. 
But I think this is game changing for follicular lymphoma. And I do think we're going to see this in the hands of the clinicians, you know, over the next half a year at most. I got to ask you, um, because you, you've used CAR-T and you've used bispecifics and, and uh, me as well. And I wonder sometimes I, I you know, Obviously, the bispecifics by far have fewer toxicities. I think there's no question about that. I used to always say that at least with CAR-T, we know if you get that CR, then there's that chance of cure. Because if you were able to get you there, and despite that you go through hell, but there's that light at the end of the tunnel. But if now we're seeing with bispecifics that there's sustained durable remissions, I don't know. I mean, do you, I mean, how I, I, I find this that's really to be a very, you know, people might abandon CAR-T eventually because they have like a fewer mm-hmm. toxic uh, agent. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts there? Is this a philosophical question kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we need to sort of clarify what we're referring to. So CAR-T cell therapy is approved for aggressive B-cell lymphomas, and it's also approved for follicular lymphoma. So when I was talking about the bispecifics right now, I was talking in the context of follicular lymphoma, which we still think is an incurable entity. We don't know that bispecifics are going to be cured of for follicular lymphoma, although we're seeing some durable benefits. You know, we don't have very, very long follow-up on bispecifics. And, and so I don't think anybody's necessarily thinking this is a cure for follicular lymphoma, but it remains to be seen. Similarly, we know CAR T cell therapy is very effective for follicular lymphoma, but I don't think we really know whether or not it can cure follicular lymphoma. So there's not been a plateau demonstrated yet on the CAR T cell therapy curve for follicular lymphoma. So my guess would be that when bispecifics come onto the market, they will bump ahead of CAR T cell therapy for follicular lymphoma because I don't think either of them are going to be perceived at this point in time as being curative. And as I said, the toxicity profile of bispecifics is very favorable and definitely, you know, it's much less effortful, resource intensive and toxic than CAR T cell therapy. So I I think everybody anticipates that it'll be bispecifics first and then CAR T cell second for follicular lymphoma. But that brings us to diffuse large B cell lymphoma, which I think is a completely separate area where we have data on CAR T cell therapy in diffuse large B cell lymphoma that's been around long enough that we can easily say CAR T cell therapy can be a curative therapy for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. What we also saw at the ASH meeting is additional data looking at bispecifics as single agent therapy in diffuse large B cell lymphoma, so relapsed refractory DLBCL. Last year, we saw data at ASCO and EHA of glofitimab. Those are the pivotal trials of, sorry, glofitimab as well as emcoritimab in diffuse large B cell lymphoma, relapsed refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma. At ASH this year, we saw the pivotal trial of odronextimab in relapsed refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma. All three of these bispecifics, I think, are showing extremely encouraging results where in patients with relapsed refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma who are after at least two lines of prior therapy, the response rates are fairly encouraging. So wavering somewhere around the 50% mark, the CR rate is kind of down a little bit lower under 50%. 
um, in the 40% range for glofitimab, a little bit lower for odronextimab. But with the data we have so far, you know, some of those CR patients are in very durable remission. What we don't have is long-term follow-up for bispecific antibodies in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So we still don't know whether or not it's curative for sure and, and where that plateau, if it is curative, is going to lie compared with CAR T-cell therapy. So if bispecifics came out tomorrow for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, I think that CAR T-cell therapy will still be preferred ahead of bispecifics for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma because it's understood that they have that curative potential. And time will tell as we get longer follow-up with bispecifics whether or not the curative potential seems clear with bispecifics. And you know, only then can we figure out, should we be sequencing bispecifics ahead of CAR-T? Is it a competition for CAR-T? I think it's too early to say. It makes me wonder um, if you, like you said, you just alluded to it, se sequencing them. You know, maybe some patients who have really aggressive disease, that, you know, they need, they can't wait that four weeks that might take until they receive the CAR T back. Then maybe it can be bridged or something like that. Just, it's an intriguing thought. I haven't yeah. seen it happen. Although on that note, just a little bit, you you do know that uh, as we discussed, one of the side effects of initiating it is cytokine release syndrome. So most of the bispecifics, they actually get given in many doses for the first couple of weeks. And usually the first full dose only comes around week three. So it does, does take a little bit of time to get the drugs going. It's not like you know giving a quick round of bridging chemotherapy and seeing immediate benefit. So you know they, they may be used to bridge people to CAR T, but I think that it's it's clear, you know, these don't work instantly because you've got that initiation part that delays, you know, giving the first full dose. Right. What else? What else? So, you know, I think one abstract that particularly intrigued me was there was a real world analysis on tapacitumab and lenalidomide in relapsed refractory DLBCL. So I think, you know, the world has exploded in terms of treatment options for relapsed refractory DLBCL. We've talked about CAR T-cell therapy being a curative potential option. We also know that there have been several novel agents, aside from the bispecifics that are coming, that have actually made their way onto the market. So we had colituzumab, vedotin, which is a antibody drug conjugate together with benamustine rituximab, which is approved. And we have tafacitumab, an anti-CD19 monoclonal antibody, together with lenalidomide that was approved. And tafalen, as I'll refer to it, was approved based on a single-arm study done in relapsed refractory DLBCL. But that pivotal trial of 80 patients was really weighted toward patients with relapse disease rather than primary refractory disease, because patients with primary refractory disease were initially excluded. So it's left open the question, even though it's come out and, and become an option, whether or not it'll be effective for those patients that have very aggressive biology, the primary refractory patients, the patients with very rapid disease evolution. And, and so what we saw at ASH was a real-world analysis, which was actually a compilation of uh, a multi-center effort from United States, where data was put together on patients being treated um, at centers across the United States. And, and they demonstrated that 
the outcomes with Tafalin seem to be far below what we would have seen and expected based on the pivotal trial result. So in the pivotal trial, you know, the response rates were well over 60%. And, you know, the CR rates were quite high. And, and in this real world analysis, the overall response rates were sort of down in about the 30% range with only about a complete response rate of 17%. So it was less than half the response rates and the CR rate than what was shown in the original pivotal result. And when they dissected the data, they were able to show that, yes, it's those sort of patients with late relapses, with relapsed DLBCL versus primary refractory disease that seemed to do relatively well, but it was those you know higher risk patients that didn't do as well. Similarly, you know, the patients who had had more than three lines of therapy didn't do very well. So I think the message that came out of that, and it'll be important to see more data, there will be more real world data emerging from different places. But the message that came out of that is that tafacitamab and lenalidomide may have its place in relapse refractory DLBCL, but probably the preferred patient will be those that have had limited prior treatment and have been more relapsed than refractory in terms of their behavior. Uh, you know, I, I, I get criticized sometimes because I am a big fan of real-world data and real-world evidence, despite all of the faulty nature of these. But I my, my defense is that, you know, this is the real world. I mean, this is how folks are looking at response. Uh, you, it's not really very controlled environment. And, and this is how often they assess for progression. And you can clean things up, but ultimately there's value in looking at real-world data. And I think what you outlined right now is a perfect example on the value of looking at, as long as you know that there are caveats to real-world data, I do think we can learn a lot from that. Yeah, well, you know, I'll maybe in that context, I'll point out one other real-world data set that I particularly liked. And you may recall last year, the big information that came out of ASH was, you know, the value of CAR T-cell therapy in the second line setting compared with a plan of salvage therapy and transplant for relapsed refractory DLBCL. And we saw three trials presented last year, two out of the three were positive. And it suggested that for patients with primary refractory DLBCL or those with early relapsing disease so within 12 months, it was preferred to go to CAR T-cell therapy rather than our usual approach of salvage and stem cell transplant. One abstract that was presented in an oral session that I particularly liked was a look at uh, patients who are out there in routine practice getting our ICE as salvage therapy. So they compiled a group of patients who were technically relapsed refractory DLBCL transplant eligible, received our ICE salvage therapy, which is probably one of the most common salvage therapies that are used, is used in the US. And they pulled out that patient population that was either primary refractory initially or relapsed within 12 months. And if they had a complete response to the R-ICE salvage therapy, they actually did very well with transplant. So this idea that just because you're primary or refractory or you know you relapse within 12 months, you have to go to CAR-T 
was actually called into question because they demonstrated that if you were one of those patients, you received RIs, you had a complete response to RIs, you actually did quite well with transplant. And they suggested that maybe it should really be a response-adapted approach. Maybe we shouldn't just trigger CAR-T and everybody blindly. We know that many of these patients have to receive some bridging. And I, I think the big question has been, what if you give a patient bridging and they have an excellent response? Do you still go to CAR-T or do you go to transplant? And, and I think this sort of reopens that question that you know if you've got a patient that you otherwise fit that um, group of patients that last year we learned had to go to CAR-T, but they received RIs and they got a CR, well, they may be served very well with stem cell transplant. So I, I think that was really interesting real-world data. I think it addressed a question that the clinical trials last year didn't address because it was really... Um, a randomization around the strategy. They didn't randomize patients after the salvage therapy, for example. So I, I think it's really going to open up some debate. I don't know if you saw, you know, speaking of rice in relapse refractory uh, DLBCL, I don't know if you saw the small study, I think was presented by Alex, Alex Herrera on the POLA plus rice, uh, polatizumab plus rice, I don't think there's a whole lot we can make out of it. I think I, 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 you know, found it pretty interesting that there was no, um, no impact to stem cell collection. And I certainly, you know, the curves that were shown for the small forty-plus patients were pretty interesting. Do you, I mean, is there a, something going on to compare rice with versus polar rice, or is this not mm -hmm. in progress? You know, so that was very intriguing data. So I, I don't want to mistake the numbers, but the response rates were, you know, about 80 to 90% and the CR rates were in the 60% range, which is very hard, very high for salvage therapy and higher than we would expect with RICE alone. So I think there was that signal that, you know, adding polituzumab to RICE in the salvage setting may actually significantly improve the number of patients who would qualify for transplant. Um, so this is going to be tested and is actually being tested in a randomized trial that is randomizing patients to polar RIs versus RIs. So it'll be definitively answered. I don't know when that data is expected, but you know, I, I'd say that this single arm study certainly made that look very attractive. You know, the one, every time I see studies like this, and as you know, we've had some other trials that tried to attempt uh, a better salvage therapy than rice, and they were negative. But, uh, I, you know, part, you know, I, I always try to think what is really the right endpoint for these type of studies, because there's a transplant element that comes after whatever salvage therapy that you do. So, I'm not convinced, for example, you need to do a look at overall survival there because, you know, you you know, the transplant might even out things. So I always struggle in thinking what is the proper endpoint and just wonder your your thoughts when you look at the salvage that's followed by transplant. You know, aside from the usual time to recovery, stem cell collection, all of that stuff, I mean, what do we look like? PFS, uh, leukemia free survival, lipomer free survival? Yeah, so I think the world is made complicated by the fact that we have more than one potential curative option now in relapse refractory DLBCL. So 
before when the only curative option was stem cell transplant, getting the maximum number of patients to transplant by getting you know, a good response to salvage was a very big goal. Now you have to question, if you're actually pushing up the CR rate or the response rate by adding in a novel therapy, you know, is that the same thing as demonstrating better chemosensitivity? And will transplants serve that, you know, extra fraction of patients that you're demonstrating an overall survival, uh, sorry, an overall response benefit in? So I, I think that, it, it, you know, the salvage therapy is just a component of a sequence, as you say. So in the end, you really do want to probably assess the progression-free survival mm. beyond, you know, the attendant transplant. So how many patients get to the transplant and what's their PFS coming out of the transplant? I know I've taken a lot of your time, about 30 minutes. So, you know, anything else that you would like to share with listeners in terms of things that were presented that intrigued you or caught your attention during a super busy meeting? You know, maybe the last thing I'll just mention is we did see some interesting data emerging on circulating tumor DNA as a response, uh, early response assessment tool. So we've talked a lot about circulating tumor DNA as being a potential sensitive marker for measuring disease, both at baseline, during therapy, and perhaps as a surveillance tool after therapy for a variety of lymphomas. What we saw at ASH was the first large-scale perspective data that came out of the Polaris trial. So the Polaris trial was the upfront trial in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma of RCHOP versus Pola Tuzumabvidotin RCHIP. That trial, as you recall, had an improvement in progression-free survival, and it's making its way through FDA evaluation right now and may emerge as a new standard of care for upfront DLBCL. But what was presented was the CTNA data that was collected as part of that trial. It's still early days because they only presented the baseline results and the baseline CT DNA level did correlate with a lot of the clinical parameters that we would consider high-risk features. Sorry about that. So there was a correlation between the baseline circulating tumor DNA and high-risk features. But more importantly, they looked at the circulating tumor DNA levels and clearance after two cycles of treatment. They actually merged the RCHOP and the POLA RCHIP arm in the presentation, but it was intriguing to see that it really separated the curves in terms of progression-free survival. If you had a significant reduction in your circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor DNA clearance after two cycles of treatment, your two-year progression-free survival was approximately in the 70% range. Uh, sorry, if you had it cleared, it was about in the 90% range. And if you didn't have it cleared, it was about in the 70% range. So those curves were quite disparate. So I, I think it was exciting to see that it could separate out a favorable risk group and a sort of higher risk group. I think what was a little disappointing is that, you know, some of the earlier data we saw in retrospective studies of circulating tumor DNA showed that those curves might separate more because even, you know, the, the patients who still had circulating tumor DNA that wasn't reduced uh, by a defined amount, 
you know, they still had a 70% progression free survival. So I, I think it's the first large data set we've seen collected prospectively that shows there is going to be value uh, for circulating tumor DNA as a potential response assessment tool that might allow us to create clinical trials that use that information to modify therapy. Whether or not the technique they used in Polaric so far is the optimal one and most sensitive one, probably not. Uh, it was based on the CAP-seq approach that had been previously reported, but we now know that there are different techniques that may be more sensitive, such as the phased seq approach that is being looked at um, and, and been reported. So I, I think it's really the first perspective large-scale trial proof of concept of circulating tumor DNA. And I do believe that it's going to eventually come out as a clinical tool that we can use, but it's still slightly early days. We need to have a validated platform, and then we need trials that let us know how we should be using it. But I, I think it was really encouraging. Fascinating progress. Always fun to come back from Ash. It's you know you're you're you. We come back uh, tired, exhausted. Then you have got the holidays, but also enthusiastic for more research. Dr. Laurie San, San, I can't thank you enough for being with me on the Hemind Pulse. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much.